Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. Today's Rachel Maddow Show Award for Headline Excellence goes to Bob Seska. The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, November 17, 2021, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, how you doing? My name is Bob. Hello, Bob. Hello, day 302 of the Biden-Harris administration, 355 days until the 22 midterms. Please follow me on Instagram at TheBobSeska and on Twitter at BobSeska underscore go. Okie dokie, with Thanksgiving a week away, I thought we'd connect today with the great Dr. Erwin Redliner and accost him with our questions about COVID, what we can expect in the coming months, why we are where we are, and of course, how best to navigate the holidays with the pandemic still scorching the earth. And in case you don't know, Dr. Redliner is a pediatrician, he's the director of the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative, and he's the senior research scholar for the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute. You know my old jobs. You might have also heard Dr. Redletter every Thursday on the Stephanie Miller Show, where he's known as Dr. Doom. I have a giant stack of questions right here of my own for Dr. Redletter, as well as questions from our subscribers on Patreon at patreon.com slash Show. So let's jump in with the inimitable Dr. Erwin Redletter. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Redletter. I mean, your work um, this past couple of years has been so immense, so invaluable for so many people. And, you know, Stephanie Miller's got a gigantic audience. And for you two to team up and to confront the pandemic the way you have is just an incredible public service. I mean, the information alone, just in those Thursday segments, has been uh, worth its weight in gold. So we, of course, we all well, thank, thank you for that. Thanks yeah, for yeah. that. So, I mean, did you ever- She's great to speak to. She's just great to speak to. <laughs> she really, know? really is. Yeah, yeah, she's one of the best. I mean, did you ever think a pandemic would be as badly botched as it was under the, the previous guy? I mean, did you ever think that that was actually going to happen in your lifetime, in your career? Yes, I did. Really? Really? What gave you that impression? What gave you that indication that well, eventually we were going to get nailed? You know, the older I've gotten, the more uh, concerned I've been that the country, the world, a lot of it's a lot of the systems that keep keep us together and healthy and moving forward mm -hmm. are not as durable as I might have hoped might have hoped years ago. And I, I feel like there's been a 
longstanding. Are we recording? But I'm sorry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're underway. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, I I feel like there's been a longstanding uh, deterioration of how we're able to function. I wrote a book in 2006 six called Americans at Risk. Yes. And I was talking about and, you know, why we're not prepared for mega disasters and what we can do now was the subtitle. Mm -hmm. And I went through a bunch of scenarios, including now this is 2006, a scenario that had the uh, emergence of a very deadly pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I talked about this whole chapter on infrastructure deterioration in the country and so on. And um, I've just not seen that much um, really focused effort to either prevent or be prepared for a pandemic or to fix the infrastructure until we, you know, just, you know, just now we're getting this um, big uh, trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Yeah. But the general point that I'm trying to make here is that my cynicism has not improved over time in a way. <laughs> yeah, I know you what know, you mean. I don't know what, you know, you remember when JFK said we're going to get to the moon in, a, in a basically a decade. Yeah. Put a, a man on the moon is what the point was, mm-hmm. a human being on the moon, and then return that person or persons back to the earth. And I think at my age at that point, I was extremely impressionable and I was just absolutely, you know, blown away about by that accomplishment. I think in some ways, many of us of my generation uh, were affected very positively by the fact that, yeah, we could do big things. And there's been a lot of disappointments since then that I've uh, experienced. And like I say, um, and I wasn't the only one that talked about the potential pandemics or and in fact, I've been researching for an article I'm going to be writing on uh, were there warnings that we ignored mm-hmm. uh, about a potential pandemic. And seems that there was a bunch of us who kept talking about these things that we needed to be better prepared for. In the case of after, you know, after uh, Hurricane Katrina, which devastated the Gulf, uh, there was a lot of writing and people talking about a potential pandemic to the point where a lot of uh, state and city plans getting ready for a pandemic were written. There were federal plans and an amazing amount of work being done and documented. Uh, and then lo and behold, it disappeared onto these, you know, shells with cobwebs. And uh. all of a sudden we find ourselves uh, in late 2019 and into 2020 experiencing a what people were warning about and b what we had made plans for low so many years ago and they were completely missing in action those plans yeah and here we are facing something like no one ever heard of this before and Mm. it's i don't know what to make of that exactly bob or what you might make of it but (laughs) it really knocked the crap out of me i'm thinking what the hell we you know then we used to be able to do things anyway that's yeah i'm 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 so with you i'm on the exact same track my angle obviously since i'm not an expert in the field my angle is more about people in general but it's the same conclusion we just can't do big things anymore and it's to the point now where 
I find myself becoming very disillusioned and, and very depressed over that sad fact. And that, you know, leads us into the fact that uh, we're facing uh, uh, an endemic COVID uh, moving forward. Yeah. That which just we're gonna, yeah. we're just going to move on and pretend like it's not even there. That's <laughs> yeah, because the problem, the problem Bob, to your point is that uh, if we don't like the fact that we're going to be facing what's going to amount to an endemic situation, the mm. question is, what could we do to avoid it? What could we have done to avoid it? And the basic thing was that we could have done research. Uh, and number one, which we did do quite a bit of, but then we, where we missed out was taking the results of the research, which is these very effective vaccines, and made sure they were available around the world, not just in the U.S. And we would have had a shot at eradicating the thing, but we're, we're pathetically far behind and we're, we're suffering from that. Why was COVID so rampant, whereas maybe something like SARS or Ebola was more or less controlled at an early stage before it got to the point that we're experiencing now with COVID? Why did it hit us so hard this time? Right. Well, first of all, one of the, let's talk about uh, Ebola for a minute. Ebola yeah. was a, it's a horribly lethal Yeah. Uh, disease. It would just kill people uh, dramatically and suddenly and and rapidly. And the the virus destroyed the uh, hosts that it was infecting. So the hosts are not able to infect others so readily. Mm-hmm. And this one, we have lots, we have millions and millions of people around the world <clears throat> who are sick, but uh, survive and they survive as uh, transmitters of the virus. And um, that was just not the case with Ebola. It was too lethal <clears throat> to end up being a serious threat of a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are other features about viruses that have, you know, all different kinds of characteristics that may make them more lethal or less lethal and so on. But, you know, the, the this illness, this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, which caused the COVID-19 worldwide pandemic, Mm -hmm. satisfied the criteria for a pandemic. Number one, it was a brand new virus. So we didn't have, we didn't have previous history of exposure. So we didn't really have the immunologic history to be able to fend it off without developing a vaccine. And second of all, it was able to be, it is able to be transmitted from person to person. And third of all, it, it uh, was lethal. And fourth of all, it was able to transcend international barriers, which are all these are the criteria for the World Health, World Health Organization to declare this a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And this was in some ways the, uh, the perfect vector to become and to fulfill the definition of a pandemic. So it was thriving uh, and uh, thriving in all parts of the world. I don't think there's a country on earth right now that has not had any any uh, effect, any presence of this virus. Mm-hmm. So this was, a, this was a rough one. And um, I wish I could say, you know, it's a sec- the worst one prior to this, of course, was the Spanish flu in 1918. Yeah which killed between 50 million and 100 million people worldwide, killed 675,000 Americans at a time when the, our fraction, our population was a fraction of what we have today. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Yeah, but the problem is, I'm not sure it's going to be another hundred years before we see a very lethal <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. You know, would I be shocked if we saw another one in a decade? No, I would not. And, um, you know, we just have to be better prepared mm. uh, to deal with these as they inevitably come up. Sometimes I wonder, doctor, whether the response by everyday Americans would have been more careful if the virus itself had been more shockingly destructive, like if it had been if it had uh, featured some sort of hemorrhagic aspect to it, like if you started bleeding from the eyeballs or something like that, would that shock people into being more careful? Whereas early on with covid, the word from certainly the White House was, "Ah, don't worry about it. It's just like the flu. <laughs> and yeah. of course, we see uh, the consequences of that certainly being on a, a ventilator uh, gasping for breath wasn't quite yeah. enough to stir people into that kind of action. I mean, if there is any... Well, I'm thinking, too, of, of smallpox, where you, yeah. your whole body would oh, yeah. break out these horrible, ugly blisters, but mm -hmm. the eyeball bleeding, I like that, Bob. You're a man with imagination, <laughs> and <laughs> I have to appreciate that, but I, yeah. I'm just now, I'm mulling over that thought, and I actually agree with you. In many ways, it could have been a very different scenario mm -hmm. if people had some very, very visible uh, signs and symptoms of having this disease. But you would think the high fatality rates that we're having and people getting really sick uh, would have been enough. And it's a little, it's kind of, you know, don't you think a little pathetic that we've been through all this, we've you know, we have approximately 675,000 people now, Americans only, who have died. Mm -hmm. um, and if we don't change our ways, if things don't get better, we could end up in six, seven months from now getting hitting that million dollar, uh, that million dollar, that million fatality mark, yeah. which would be, you know, just another number, but it's certainly a frightening one. Can you explain why the CDC eases up on protocols when the numbers uh, are low? To, to once and for all smother the virus when it's at its weakest. Uh, why aren't we right. doing that? I mean, does that make any sense to you? It doesn't make sense, but I completely understand what you're saying. And yeah. I think it's a it's a it's it's a damn shame in a way. If you think about it, mm -hmm. we're, we're kind of addicted to this uh, daily toll here. You know, we're tracking everything as much as possible, which includes the case reports, the case reports in in specific states and regions, the case reports by age. We're tracking hospitalization rates. We're tracking fatality rates. Um, and we're tracking, you know, who gets uh, so-called long COVID or, or symptoms long beyond yeah. um, the, uh, you know, their, their acute illness. And, but what, what happens now is, which one of the things that is surprising to me is that we're very reactive mm -hmm. to the day-to-day -day data. And and it's, this is a case of, you know, in some ways, national and professional wishful thinking. You know, oh my God, the, the numbers are down for the last few weeks. I guess we should start thinking that maybe we've uh, gotten this thing under control. Yeah. You know, one of the most, one of the strangest things I heard in the last few weeks was the former FDA commissioner himself, Scott Gottlieb, who's a pretty, you know, respected physician. He had that, mm -hmm. he ran the, the FDA. And he said just a few weeks ago that by January, I think he said January 4th, we should pretty much have this uh, COVID thing under control. 
God. And I almost fell off my chair. Yeah. Like, what the hell are you freaking talking about? <laughs> are you kidding? And I, you know, I called uh, Dr. Fauci and I said, what do you make of this? Because that, that morning is when Gottlieb had uh, made that statement. I think it was on ABC or something. And uh, and uh, Fauci totally agreed with me. It's a preposterously inappropriately optimistic yeah. uh, conclusion to draw because we're having a little bit of a downturn at that point. Mm. And now we're having an uptick after he said that. So, uh, you know, this brings up this other point. You know, there's a lot of so-called modelers, Bob, you know, these people at epidemiologists are saying, here's where we are now. Here's what we think, knowing the characteristics of the illness. And this is what I predict will be happening at some point in the future. That hardly ever turns out to be accurate. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think at a time like this, when it seems that we are more and more uncertain about where this is going, you know, you're on very, very thin ice by making a very specific prediction about where we are with uh, COVID. Of course, everybody wants to know. Yeah. Everybody in the yeah. profession, the pub, general public, my family, when is this going to be over is the question. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. We'll have to see. We're still tracking. Yeah. Well, I've given up on it being over. I mean, I feel like we just, going back to our original uh, point of conversation, doctor, we just can't do it. We're incapable of doing it. Not enough of us give a shit. And that's, yeah. the, that's the biggest problem. And then, you know, when you see numbers really low, like after the first vaccine rollout last spring, seems to me as if that's when we should have clobbered it. That's when masking should have been doubled, should have been uh, more uh, protocols adhered to at that point in time. Uh, just to kill it right there when the numbers were low is so tantalizing. And oh, yet, Bob, that's when we relaxed only, everything, you know? You know, yeah. if only some higher power could say, okay, here's what we're dealing with. And yeah. listen, by next week, we need every single freaking human being uh, vaccinated. Mm-hmm. That would have been lovely. We would have squelched it. In fact, if we, we still think that if we could get up to that magic, you know, 80, 85 percent number of everybody being vaccinated, we might reach that magic herd immunity number where it would just kind of stop the virus in its tracks. We're nowhere near that. Yeah, We're pathetically yeah. far from that. Why are we far from that? We know it would be interesting. You and I should go on a tour of these red states where these people believe still that if they get vaccinated, they're inserting it. Somebody's inserting a chip into their body right. or they become magnetic uh, or this is all uh, a, a spoof or a, a, a conspiracy that uh, was uh, developed by the White House and the Biden administration. Who the hell knows what else people are believing? Oh, you, you know, horse parasite medication will stop it in its tracks. Amazing. I mean, the resistance among Americans and actually many other places in Europe, too, but <clears throat> the resistance among Americans uh, to getting vaccinated is startling. And we don't have the mechanism really to enforce things in a timely manner, mm -hmm. like enforce things like mandatory vaccines. In fact, you know what? I'm already referring to the next wave, uh, doctor, as the complacency wave. I think that's what we're facing next. Where <laughs> it's an upswing based on complacency. And, you know, one thing I've been trying to figure out is the reopening of travel from Europe uh, right when Europe is spiking with a. I think uh, WHO is forecasting half a million dead this coming winter. What am I missing? Well, the only thing that I would say about this, and I, I totally agree with your, you know, raised eyebrows at this because I had the same feeling. But 
it's not just open doors. It's open doors, but you've got to be able to prove that you have been fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you There's going to be rules on the airplanes when you come in. There's going to be testing requirements. Okay. So there are safeguards in effect, but the most important one is if you're fully vaccinated, uh, you you that is what you need to kind of get a ticket into the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably okay. And don't forget, the longer we postpone uh, people and business coming to the country, the longer we're going to postpone the full economic recovery that we certainly need. And yeah. um, so it's a, it's a complicated, multifaceted challenge, but I think that's where we are. Should we be looking at the booster rate uh, more than the original vaccination rate to determine where we're headed? In other words, it seems like the vaccinations from, say, the early adopters in the spring and summer are precipitously wearing off. Those vaccines are wearing off at this point, indicating that the booster rate should maybe be the central focus now to make up for that. Yeah. So let's talk about boosters a bit. So, um, my wife and I were, were, we got our second shot. She got Pfizer. I got Moderna. Mm. We both got them on February 4th. Yeah. I remember that because that's actually her birthday. That's what I did for her birthday. We we're going to go out to dinner. <laughs> I said, hey, you know what? let's get our second shot. Hey, you know what? What better she, gift is that? Even she, though it's free. <laughs> and, and I'm sure she's going to start talking to me again soon. Any day now. Expecting her to answer me. But I think that the thing of it is, so we found out mostly through studies that are coming out of Israel and some other places, but that over time, the immunity that you get from the vaccine begins to wear off. And around six months is where we start to see a drop in the levels of the antibodies that have been produced as a result of your uh, getting vaccinated. Mm. At that point, you it was felt that if we got a third booster, if we got a third shot or a booster shot, what would that do to our antibody level? And it turns out it it pushed it way back up, like as if it was uh, a few weeks after your uh, initial series. So the boosters have been shown to be a very effective way of getting us back uh, in a situation where we have uh, better antibody protection. Yeah. Now, I want to say this as a side note, Bob, because this is a little uh, unfortunate. But when you get it, when you, when you, if you went to your doctor and said, "I'd like to get an antibody test to see how I'm doing in terms of protection," the doctor will co- get the test. It'll come back with a number. Let's say it's fifty units of whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and say, "Well, doc, is uh, is fifty good enough to protect me?" Because uh, it was 500 when I first got the shots. The doctor says to say, I have no idea. We don't know how much antibody is actually necessary to keep you protected. So we're flying in the dark a bit here. And the other thing is, even if your antibodies are low, there's other parts of the immune system, something called T cells and B cells, among other things, that you don't, you can't easily measure. And so what I'm, all I'm saying is that we got a lot of unknowns here. However, there's no question that the booster shot is a very important tool uh, in our arrow in our quiver here mm-hmm. that that people who are vac- vaccinated um, should should really get. And you're going to see in the next couple of days 
that the federal government is going to go along with a, what a lot of other state, what a lot of states are doing now, which is saying that if you're 18 or over, regardless of whether you have um, any kind of risk factors or not, you should get a booster shot. All of that said, yes, everybody's going to be getting boosters. But the problem is, if I might elaborate here just a little bit, sure. is not the people who have already gotten vaccinated. Those people are going to be relatively easy to convince they need a booster shot. You know, you had two shots. The immunity is um, waning. Get a, get a booster. Okay. It's the people who didn't get even the first shots yeah. that I'm much more worried about. And we could boost everybody who's already gotten vaccinated, but we're still going to be left with many millions of people who are the vaccine hesitant or the hardcore resistors or whatever. So one thing I'm a little concerned about is, is the national priority going to be on boosting or is it going to continue to be getting people their first shots? And I, I think the latter is critically important. And the failure to get people the first uh, couple of shots is what's really going to keep us from getting control over the pandemic anytime soon. Do you know the extent of, let's just confine it to the United States, Americans who have a phobia of getting injections or getting blood draws. They're just, they're afraid of needles. And I'm not saying that to poke fun of them or anything like that. I wonder if that's also a major factor here that isn't really being discussed. I mean, a lot of people say they don't want to get the vaccine. They certainly don't want to get the booster when that comes around. And I'm wondering if that's driving it, just the basic phobia of having the shot. Well, Bob, I think that's a really interesting question. Of all the data that's out there about the reason that people don't get shots, mm. They're hesitant. They're worried about uh, side effects or they're in the crazy zone and they're they think that somebody's going to make them magnetic with the shots or <laughs> yeah. it's a political conspiracy, though. There's a lot of data about that, but I've actually never seen a report about these. There are people who are very wary of getting anything done. They faint mm -hmm. at the sight of blood and whatever. And this is not to make fun of them at all yeah. or belittle them. It's basically to say. That is a is potentially an issue, but I don't think it's actually been explored, but a very interesting one. But at the same time, I'm seeing a lot of kids with smiles on their faces getting the getting the vaccine. And uh, and that's always impressive when I see the kids bravely going yeah. in and doing it. That's always something that puts a smile on my face at the very least. Um, is there any new information on how long natural immunity from having covid will last? I mean, I've read anywhere from a week to a year uh, to a big question mark. Uh, it's a pretty big gap there. Are, are experts yeah. starting to zero in on more specific numbers? Well, there's certainly data uh, being collected. And don't forget, since it's a new virus, mm -hmm. uh, the only way really to tell whether natural immunity from actually having, having had the disease is going to last four months, six months, or a year and a half is to follow people for that long. Yeah. And, you know, we just haven't had had enough of it around um, to make that determination. So a big I don't know is hmm. still appropriate here. Yeah. And yeah. then the question has come up. If you have had the disease, do you need to get vaccinated? And the answer right now is, yes, you should. Mm -hmm. You still need to get vaccinated. Um, but this controversy about what's called the durability of the immune response following a vaccine versus following the disease and still an unanswered question. And that's something I think we will get more answers on soon, but 
I think the preponderance of evidence, not all of it, uh, suggests that the vaccine provides a longer lasting immunity. Have we started to look at the health and quality of life ramifications of COVID becoming endemic? Are there studies that are being developed along those lines? You mean like, like, like what, 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 what is, yeah, what yeah. is, what is life going to be like uh, here in the United States in particular when it's endemic, there's nothing really we can do about it at that point. And it's just something that becomes a fact of life, uh, however terrible, however deadly. It seems like w- with an endemic situation, seems like we basically are all vulnerable on a long enough timeline. It's eventually going to hit all of us at some point. Has there been any uh, forecasts along those lines? Like, what is our life going to be like here? What sorts of things can we expect with uh, COVID being endemic? Well, let's start with this. First, and that's a very, very interesting question. But let's start with this. The COVID pandemic has already altered life as we know it a yeah. lot. Oh, you yeah. know, you know the uh, the analogy of boiling a frog. You know, and hmm. you put a frog in cold water and you turn up the heat, and and uh, it'll eventually die in there. But he'll tolerate awful lot of heat because if you're going up slowly versus throwing somebody in a fire or whatever. And anyway, it's a, it's kind of a crazy analogy, and I'd like to retract it, but. <laughs> You know, this is radio. It's a permanent record now. So, but let me say this. What has happened is in a way, in ways that we haven't necessarily focused on, a lot has changed uh, how we work, where we work, what the workplace is like, uh, what we need to do to eat dinner in a restaurant Mm. uh, or go to a sporting event or theater. Much of our life has changed. Because during the acute phases of this, we're insisting on separation uh, and avoiding crowding, wearing masks indoors, learning remotely, working remotely, really reducing travel. If you add up all of those things which have changed, and then you say, which you just did very appropriately as well, what happens if it becomes endemic and it's just a permanent part of life? Well, first of all, I would assume, you know, right now, even as we as we're significantly better than we were a year ago or even in September of this year, um, we're still having, as we speak, between a thousand and thirteen hundred fatalities every single day from COVID. Incredible. And, you know, that's extraordinary. And I think at some point, uh, yes, we might reach some level of success even though we might, the virus might still be with us. It's un- inevitably going to be with us for a while, but hopefully those fatality rates should be way, way down. Mm-hmm. And um, before we can sort of declare a truce, if not a victory over COVID. And that's, that's what we're dealing with. I think there are going to be some things that are, that are going to be uh, different permanently. I don't think we're going to see life as it was because during seasons when we're getting high rates of whether it's influenza, influenza or COVID, we're going to see people wearing masks indoors. We're going to see people still uh, being asked to to do uh, physical separating, social distancing, and so on. I think those are going to be facts of life. Uh, in addition to getting regular booster shots, that are going to keep the majority of us safe. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you this, Bob. I think this is something people don't understand. If you decide you're not going to get vaccinated, you're not going to get vaccinated, 
you put yourself at a risk that's between 10 and 30 times higher wow. uh, than for people who are vaccinated, a risk of dying. Mm. And if you want to live like that, you know, good luck to you. But the problem is that almost all of us, like you said, are ultimately going to get some form of COVID. If you've been vaccinated, the chances are overwhelming you'll get a mild case, a breakthrough case that's not going to put you in a hospital or kill yeah. you. Uh, well, it's uh, it seems like a uh, a small minority are kind of wagging the dog at this point, and it's uh, as you know, immensely frustrating. And you know, I wanted to get to some uh, listener questions here. I've got a whole variety. Oh my God, I've got so many questions here for you. But uh, starting off here, let's start with uh, Jen Hardy who asks. And some some of them are referring to you as Doctor Doom. So if I if I accidentally say Doctor Doom, <laughs> that's only because it's on the page. Well. Uh, so please ask Dr. Doom how we navigate family who aren't vaccinated. Obviously, lots of people are thinking about the holidays. Do you spend time with them or do you decline? What, what are your recommendations along those lines, if any? Here's what here's what I here's what I recommend. Not everybody's going to feel like doing this. And uh, but I think this is what uh, is appropriate. You say to a loved one, and I mean that a loved one that we love to see you. We love your grandchildren to see you, but we're going to wait until you get vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, it's taking a risk that for our children and grandchildren and ourselves are getting a breakthrough. That's a risk for you. So as soon as you get vaccinated, we'll be happy for all of us to get together. Mm -hmm. But until you get vaccinated, it's just not going to happen. That could be said nicely, nicer than I just said it. But <laughs> Because the fact is, you know, it's like there are a lot of people uh, who are facing this within their own families. I have a situation in my own family that is beyond frustrating, but it's something that we're trying to deal with. And uh, somebody who's important to our kids and our grandchildren and these people who have always been part of our family activities, but not now. Yeah. Not until they get vaccinated. Meantime, Joe and Jenny Berman ask, have we truly squandered? And we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, uh, doctor. Have we truly squandered our opportunity to actually eradicate the virus? Is that door closed or closing behind us? You know, this is such a rapidly spreading and mutating virus, Bob, that it's I don't it, it'd be hard to say that we uh, have totally closed the door on this, but. I think the thing that keeps the door closed on trying to really solve it as a, you know, just really ending it globally is the fact that there are so many countries, really continents around the world, like Africa and Southeast Asia, where the vaccination rates are very, very low, like, you know, 5% of the population being mm. vaccinated. Yeah. Those are places where there's a festering of the virus and a, an easy uh, development of mutations and variants that inevitably will escape those boundaries. The, mm -hmm. the virus has never heard of boundaries. So yeah. it's inevitably going to get to us. So it's really true. It sounds like a cliche, but we're not going to, we're not going to conquer this until it's conquered everywhere. In other words, we may get a temporary boost or relief if, you know, your state, your city has very low numbers. But because there's so much travel and so much communication among people and movement among people, um, 
we're really far from getting to a place where it could be eradicated uh, from the planet. Okay, moving on. Jimmy Driscoll asks, does being vaccinated and boosted cut down on my chances of spreading COVID if I still somehow caught the virus? So presumably, you're going to have a much lower viral load, meaning how much virus is actually in your nose and throat. Mm -hmm. And your chances of spreading it uh, are less than somebody who's got a flagrant case, not mitigated by having been vaccinated. Um, And that's the case. But we should remember that the vaccines do not eliminate you getting the infection. Mm. They simply massively reduce the chance of you getting very sick, uh, going to an ICU or dying from the disease. Okay, so Jerry Hillman asks, can the mRNA technology that was used to produce the COVID vaccine be used for other types of viruses, such as the ones that cause the common cold? Yes, you know, this mRNA technology, which is what Pfizer and Moderna used, um, is a very powerful tool for rapidly developing um, new vaccines. And I think we're going to see a lot of progress made with other diseases using this uh, technology. It's a really big deal. and It's a good question. Okay, Jason Albrecht asks, I would like to know what the doctor's thoughts are on the new Israeli study saying the vaccine is not required if you have had COVID-19. I haven't heard of that study myself, but I don't know if you have any insight on that, doctor. I have, you know, and and actually Israel is one of the places from which there's been, um, you know, not so much controversy, but different kinds of data, different studies showing Mm -hmm. different results. And, And I think this question of the immunity conferred by the vaccine or the disease or the combination of the two, having a disease and then also getting vaccinated. I don't think we're at the end of the discussion about this. And there's a lot of data that's going to have to be digested now as we try to figure this out. But um, it's still it's still a work in progress, Jason. Amy Clark asks an interesting question here. Uh, is there reason to believe that the virus will gradually mutate to become weaker and therefore less scary? Well, if it becomes weaker, that means weaker in the sense that it's not transmissible as much as the original strains. Yes, that would be yeah. a big deal. But unfortunately, this is probably the time to say it can also become mutated to the point where uh, it is more resistant to the vaccines. Mm-hmm. And that would be a real problem. And there's recently been uh, a public health expert who's uh, predicting that uh, there's a some chance that we'll get a, uh, a vaccine-resistant strain, which would be unthinkably horrendous if that were to happen. Yeah. Hopefully it won't. My God, yeah. Uh, Ted the Cat asks, because there are so many idiots in America, see previous conversation between me and Dr. Redliner, uh, what is the next variant that is of interest to the CDC? Right. So Delta Plus, which uh, is a, we're somewhere between 6 and 8% of the new cases um, of the uh, virus in the United Kingdom, and there's been a few cases here. It's thought to be 10% more transmissible, but not necessarily more lethal uh, or making people sicker, just that it can move around more quickly from person to person. Um, There's the Lambda variant and there's others that are being studied. And this is being watched very, very carefully, really around the world and not just in the U.S. And and I I think 
you know, we're just, uh, we can't let up on that. It's called surveillance because mm -hmm. we have to make sure we understand what's out there and what we need to do about it. By the way, we're lucky so far that the vaccines that are out there and available are pretty effective against really all the known strains that are problematic, which is a really good thing, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. I was concerned <laughs> early on, as I think we all were, but it, it certainly uh, turned out that way. So it's great to know. Uh, yeah. Shelly Engdahl asks, does the mRNA vaccines have the same risk to someone with Julian Barr syndrome oh, yeah, as yeah. the flu it's vaccine? Yeah, Guillain-Barre. Yeah, I completely botched that then. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> Julian Barr. Like that, okay. Uh, yeah. Guillain-Barre. Yeah. It's a little French thing. You have to understand. <laughs> All right. Gotcha. So Guillain-Barre is a, uh, it's a neurologic illness that, uh, uh, you know, where the nerves are actually affected by the virus. And it can be serious. It can cause, uh, you know, paralysis of various uh, nerves, including those that control respirations, but it's very, very rare with the vaccines. It happens, you know, it's like the myocarditis, the heart inflammation thing that we've heard about. Yeah. These are extremely rare complications. And under all circumstances, you are so much worse off if you get the disease and if you, if you uh, get the vaccine. In other words, the mm -hmm. chances of getting something really horrible are far worse uh, for the unvaccinated person who, who actually catches COVID-19 uh, than is the case for the uh, any any complications from the vaccine. Right on. Salvatore Aversa asks, when can we expect that the vaccine will be available for babies? I have a one-year-old and the wait has been excruciating. I can't even imagine. Those of you with kids, unbelievable the uh, the nightmare that that must be. Right. Well, you know, for the time being, as you well know, Bob, we're dealing with five to 11 year olds who are now eligible. Mm -hmm. And we're going to try to get as many of those young kids vaccinated as soon as, you know, as soon as we can. Uh, kids younger than five. And by the way, there's they're working on figuring out the dosage for and the safety of the vaccine in, in babies and toddlers. But I still think we're some months away from from that thing, you know, from yeah. that uh, actually happening. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I know it's, it's, uh, it is nerve wracking because you want to make sure that your children are protected from whatever they have to be protected from. And I guess there's a lot of us who think just wish they just hurry up and get this out there. So, yeah. um, but it's going to be some months still. Okay, Anna O'Brien says, I am vaccinated. My booster is due December 21st. Do I have to wait the full six months? Also, once I get the booster, do I wait two weeks before it is effective? So a couple of good questions in there for you, doctor. Six, there's a certain arbitrariness, Bob, about the six-month period. Yeah. Because, you know, this is sort of, it's all relative. So we know that by six months, a lot of people's uh, immune levels are waning. They're, they're just They're just dropping. Are they dropping to a point where you're more susceptible? We're not exactly sure. But at six months, and this is a pretty uh, arbitrarily uh, defined interval, uh, it's time to start thinking about it. Yeah. Could you get it at four months? You certainly could. There's no harm in it. Uh, but if you still have effective immune response at four months, why not wait until, why not wait uh, as long as you're still protected? Mm -hmm. and then get the vaccine at six months or seven months, something like that. But ultimately, 
we all need to get this booster shot, as we said earlier. And, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be uh, the way we do things to keep ourselves protected as long as possible. Is there Did still- I answer her question? Yeah, I think so. But the the second part of the question was a, a pretty good one. I got this question quite a bit. Is there still that two-week incubation period after the booster, the same sort yeah. of thing that we experienced with the initial uh, vaccinations? Right. You know, so two to three weeks is sort of the maximum. You'll get the maximum uh, boost yeah. probably. Uh, you know, if, if if it's not, if it's 12 days, you'll still have a boost. But I think a lot of these these time intervals are not based on a lot of hard research, but it's a compilation of what we know about how the immune system works and what we're actually seeing in practice. And and I think the two-week thing is a good mark to know that you're fully safe. But, you know, if you had to go on a trip and it was, like I said, 12 days, supposed to 14 days, I, I don't think there's going to be much difference. Okay, sounds good. Because I got my booster 12 days before Thanksgiving Day. So uh, I, I think I'm still in the window. Um, just Well, two- I, you know, not, now that I know, I'm, I'd like to retract my Thanksgiving invitation that we sent to you. It's it's <laughs> Okay. All I, right. Well, never mind then. I was going to bring this. I was going to bring lots of. damn turkey. You know? <laughs> I was going to bring the booze, but if you don't want that, I'll well, stay home. Mind. Damn it. You know, I, I take back what I said. In fact, <laughs> if you want to come on Wednesday, the doors will be open. Sounds good. Uh, just a, a couple more, just two more quick questions. I know you got to run. Sure. Uh, James Johnson asks, Aaron Rodgers mentioned being allergic to the vaccines. I'd like to hear the doctor's thoughts about allergies to the vaccines. Can I first tell you my thoughts about Aaron Rodgers? Absolutely. An ignorant dangerous son of a bitch who is has done god knows what damage in terms of promulgating this bs that he's gotten from you know biggest purveyors of bs on the planet when it comes to this stuff yep i i think he should have been fired personally mm-hmm. now you had a question actually yeah. also did you there yeah, was a yeah. question there. it was yeah. about uh, allergies to the vaccines is that a, is that a yeah. thing yeah yeah well some people it's very rare but there are certain ingredients in a vaccine uh, that can cause a very serious allergic reaction. Mm -hmm. But if you have no history of significant allergies, I'm talking about the kind of allergies that would require you to to carry on an EpiPen, you know, where where you'd have to give yourself a shot to start be able to breathe. Um, If it's, you know, if you just have a milk allergy or some other kind of general pollen allergy, that is not relevant to uh, keeping from getting the vaccine. Okay, gotcha. Uh, Timothy O'Neill, this will be the last question from our listeners. Timothy O'Neill writes, uh, when will the antibody test kits be available so people can tell when their antibodies are getting low and that they need a new booster. Is that even a, a thing that they're developing? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me talk about that. All I yeah. must say, I'm, I'm disappointed that he didn't want to talk some more about um, about Mr. Rogers there and Rogers. But okay, so I, I'm over it now. Yeah. Okay. okay, so let's move on to the actual question he asked. Yeah, yeah. Um, there won't be anytime soon a reliable home use or rapid testing for uh, antibodies. And part of it is it's tricky. There's a particular kind of antibody that we need to be looking for. It's not something that I would see happening in the consumer market anytime soon. 
And plus, like I said earlier, Bob, there's no way that we don't know how to interpret interpret the numbers even. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a ways off. I see. You know what? This is a, I, I, I said two more questions. I've got one more quick one for you, Please. doctor. Um, sure. And this is for Mike Espinoza. I think this is important because of Thanksgiving around the corner. Regarding eating indoors at restaurants, is there a point to requiring masks to enter and move around the restaurant, but allowing it to be removed once at the table? I've found that to be an interesting dichotomy there. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I, I have the same feeling. We, so, first of all, more and more restaurants are now asking for proof of vaccination to go in. So if yeah. I'm walking into a restaurant and I know that everybody's been vaccinated, including the staff as well as the guests, mm-hmm. I'm feeling already pretty good about it. If I see that they're not jamming the tables together like in the old days and there was some spacing there, I'm feeling better. If I'm seeing other people with masks on until they get seated and start, you know, sipping on water or their drinks or getting their appetizers. Um, I think we're comfortable. Let's say Karen and I are comfortable if all of those things are in place. We wear the, for a variety of reasons, maybe symbolically, I'm not sure, but we wear the mask until we get seated at the table. Mm-hmm. Does that do anything uh, specifically? I, I don't know, but I think it's a message that we're still in it, that we're still trying to be careful. Mm -hmm. And I am, I am in favor and that you're walking around, you're hanging around, you know, waiting for the major D to seat you. I think it's just fair to other patrons to, you know, wear the mask and take it off when you sit down. That's so smart because I think we live in a monkey see monkey do society, Dr. Redletter. And I think the more of us setting a good example out in public, the more people are going to be inclined to do those sorts of things. I mean, peer pressure is real. Fear of missing out it is, is really real. real Bob. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the books are called The Future of Us and Americans at Risk. You can see Dr. Redletter on MSNBC and especially on the Stephanie Miller show every Thursday. And of course, you can follow Dr. Redletter on Twitter at Irwin Redletter MD. Link in the description. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, and thank you for doing what you do. I uh, I think I speak for thousands when I say your contributions have been literally life saving. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Doctor. Well, thank you so much for saying that and for allowing me to have some time with you, uh, Bob. It's been a pleasure. It went very fast, and <laughs> yes. uh, really to, to all your listeners, um, I. I think this is a time when uh, having good information by people who care and having these great questions to be, uh, you know, aired and answered is a a wonderful thing. Maybe we'll do it again sometime. Absolutely. I can't wait for that. Thank you again, doctor. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.